Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, we love you. This is Bricktown. Dad, how you doing? Doing wonderful. Wonderful day. It's wonderful. And we're here we're here in the sunshine and you know, sunny Carolinas in the sand hills and we're doing fine. And at seventy six I'm still kicking. God is good. Glad yes. to kick it. Yep. Uh, so I know that uh, you've got a big showcase, an event coming up. Tell the audience about it. Well, we were just informed a couple of days ago that the Association of RV Park Owners, called ARVIC, uh, comes to their national meeting will be here in Raleigh. And as part of that, that national meeting, they have a tour of a certain number of parks they take people on if they want to go and visit see what it's like in that area, what the park, parks look like. Because remember, there's 15,000 parks in America, and each of them is different. So we are informed that they're going to have three parks on tour here, and we're one of the three parks that they're going to come and visit. Uh, that's uh, Oasis that's of awesome. North Carolina, which that is just is south awesome. of Pinehurst. Oasis of North Carolina, south of Pinehurst. And you're one of the featured campsites. That's proud, I'm proud of you, Dad. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, we've been open about 13 years, and we've been completely full for about the last four or, four or five. And uh, it's an interesting uh, business to be in, but we provide a, a service for a lot of different people. And the industry of, of RV and RV parks has changed, particularly since the C-19 pandemic. People don't stay in hotels anymore. They stay in RV parks. They're buying RVs as soon as they come up to come off the rack, basically. And uh, they're staying in RV parks. So all RV parks that I know of are full. And uh, we have a vacancy. We'll have 10 people who want to be in that vacancy. So we're, we're looking at, a, at, a little, at some expansion. And, of course, we have a number of things that are in the works. But we also are probably the most unusual RV park in the country. Because we have the largest yurt in the country, it'll seat it'll seat 100 people. And a yurt is a round tent-like building that uh, is kind of like a permanent building, but it uh, basically feeds up the design of Genghis Khan in the Mongols of the uh, I guess it's the 13th century. And the uh, we have a, it's a Pacific Yurts Yurt, which is the best yurt company in the country, in, out of Seattle, Washington. And it's up, and it's uh, it's 30 feet in diameter. It's a huge thing. And uh, so we uh, going to make that a conference center, and we we'll rent it out too for people who want to stay in a, a very large building. So all of this is what's going on now, and we were trying to do it, but we also have a glamping pod, the only glamping pod in the southeast, in fact. Uh, and it's like what a glamping pod is. It looks like an upside-down boat. And the original Glimpy Pod makers in England were actually boat builders, and that's what it is. But ours stays full, and it's rated as the top uh, Airbnb site in, the, in our part of the country. Uh, and it's always full, and it's a, it's, a, it's a nice experience. It's very different. And plus, we have tiny houses. We have, we have three of those. So we're probably the most unusual RV park literally in the country. And this RV park is on a site of the land that my great-grandfather bought 
1890, and he was freed as a slave when he was eight years old. Like when, one of the biggest things coming out is Juneteenth, and well, he was freed before that. But basically, that's what he was freed as, and he, he bought it for a dollar an acre, and we're lucky to live on it. I, as, as I retired as a professor at Auburn University uh, 13 years ago, uh, my brother has suggested we use the land for an RV park. And uh, we have, and it's one of the few minority-owned RV parks in the country. I think there's three or four in the country out of 15,000 RV parks. So we, we're, we're a member of that association, ARVIC, and uh, we're a member of the North Carolina section of that, which is called Sea Arvic, and uh, we try to uphold their goals and also the goals of all our customers, and we're rated, you know, very highly by everybody who comes through here, so that's the most important thing I guess I'll talk about, but anyway, they, we're having an open house for them uh, the first week in November of this year, and that will be shortly after the grand opening of, of the new yurt, which is uh going to be, uh, it's an interesting proposition, you know, fitting it out and putting stuff stuff together, because when you build an RV park or you build a, a number of sites like this, it's a very laborious process. It's five or six things you, you have to do and get permits for and everything else. And I think we're going to start today, start with our permitting for getting that, the, the additional stuff we need for it today. Awesome. Awesome. The other thing you wanted to talk about was dancing in the street, Paisley Park. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. Uh, growing up in New York City, there was a park called Paisley Park, which had a pond in the middle of it in Queens. I think I guess it's probably still there. But uh, nobody was swimming and swimming that I know of. But actually, had a basically a probably about a four or five feet deep pond and uh, it was in the middle of not a great neighborhood but it was a suburban neighborhood and uh, this was during the time when uh, I had just gotten out of high school I was in my second year and first year in college I guess and uh, myself and a couple of other people decided we wanted to because Martha and Ben Ellis had a song called Dancing in the Street so we had a record player that played played music, and I forgot how it played, but it must have been plugged into something. And so we were we sit under the lights there in Baisley Park, and right next to the pond, and we danced in the streets. And I remember a police car came up from with two New York City policemen, and they came and watched us for three hours. <laughs> they thought it was hilarious, uh, and. Um, so whenever I hear dance in the street, I always think back on that day. That day was, gosh, that was 63 or 64. Wow. So uh, somebody brought a boom box out there? or a yeah, it, was like, it was like a boom box, but it was a record player. This is wow. before the era of boom boxes. And I forget what, what where we plugged the electricity in. I really don't remember. But the street lights. You got it from the street lights. Probably, but, you know, it said it was... It, it's like a walkway they had around the pond, and it was a city park. It was open, but as I said, okay. it, had a, it had a roadway, and as I said the police car came up and just sat, watched us for, for three hours. All right. they, thought, they thought it was wonderful. 
the, those are the young dancing days, and you're out there macking, doing your thing. Yeah. Can't complain at all. No, and I, was, I was thinking about that, you know, every time I hear dancing, it's great, I remember that. No, that's, that's, that's the good days. Yeah. Uh, you also wanted to talk about Empire State Building deliveries. Yeah, when I got out of when I got out of high school, I had a number of different jobs that were in Manhattan. And the first one was that I got out, I would guess I was about 16 or 17. I think, I'm pretty sure I was out of high school, about to be on my senior year in high school. And I got a job. My mother was in a hospital for some operation, and a lady next to her owned a, owned a company called Chop Printing, Chop Printing. And they were a printing company in lower Manhattan. So my mother said, why don't you give my son a job? And they gave me a job. And I, I spent a summer as a stripper assistant. And what that was, they did uh, printing of lots of labels. Oh, of, oh, 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 back up, back up. <laughs> yes. oh, 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 oh,
they would actually they would actually just turn the, the spigots on, and as fast as, as it would come out, they would come and give you coffee. This is before Starbucks or anything like that, and I'd never seen that before. Uh, but I was all in the Lower East Side, and that's, that's during the time when the Crest came out with their various songs for the, for the old oldies people, like Step by Step and the rest of that stuff. Well, the Crest were from that neighborhood. And uh, it was one of the interesting things that I, I've done in my youth. I had about three or four jobs like that. Uh, a year later, I worked for the city of New York for the youth commission. I was his driver. Of course, he, didn't, he was a terrible driver, but he insisted that he drove anyway. I did, so I just sat next to him all summer. And he scared me to death as he drove, drove 50 miles an hour throughout New York City. And uh, he was something of a... I'd say a gangster, kind of. He was a black guy, but he was kind of a gangster working one of the, and I guess it's the Lindsay administration. In fact, about about four or five years later, him and his girlfriend got murdered uh, at a, some kind of a drug bust, bust thing, and they both got murdered uh, in, in Brooklyn later on. This is much, much, much later after I, I knew him. But uh, he was the first black youth commissioner of New York City. So was also, you know, we, there were so many things like that I did at summer jobs during college, uh, and each of them was different. And after that, of course, I became a, a, a very interesting job. One was working in the pool there, Astoria Pool, which was a pool, pool big enough, as big as a football field. It was three feet deep. And we had thousands of people coming through there. It was part of the, originally built as part of the, the 1938 World's Fair, New York World's Fair. It's part of that, so it's right under the Triborough Bridge. And uh, I was one of the people who gave out the, uh, uh, we have tags that people put their clothes in as they go, go go swimming. So they put all their clothes in this little basket to get a tag for their basket. So I was the only black guy that was there, and because this was during the Civil Rights era, during the year of the March on Washington and everything else, and I was actually my first, I had actually a slightly different title than everybody else, but I was working out in the uh, in the park, basically, you know, in the yard, and, and we're doing park work, and, and uh, which was basically greenery work, cutting grass and stuff like that. And all the, all the guys inside this, this park, this pool thing, were all young white guys. I was in college, and some of them were in high school, because you had to know somebody to get a job either place. And they basically said, well, we'll give you a job here. And because of the Marshall and Washington, they said, we have no black guys. So they put me inside, and that's what I did all summer. That winter, I was playing semi-pro football for Jerry's Tyrant, and we actually practiced in the middle of that pool in sneakers because there's no water in it. In wintertime, they drained it out. But we actually practiced in it, and about four or five years later, my younger brother, Rodney, became the first black guy to run a pool, one of the New York City pools in the, in the city's history. So all the stuff happened in the summertime, you know, all kinds of these kinds of things. And one of our next door neighbors in St. Albans worked as the secretary for Robert Moses, who built all the highways in New York City and New York, and also built all it was in charge of the park commissions. So she said, well, if you want to get a job in the park, this is what you needed to do. And you had to come there very early, be the first person down, and then you could pick whatever you wanted to pick. So I would get there an hour early and just sit there and put my name down, and then that 
but because I wanted to be a, a recreation guy, not necessarily a guy in the park, you know, raking stuff up. I was a recreation assistant when we played basketball. So those are all the things that you had to do in New York City, because New York City is such a, to work for the city in any capacity at that time, it is such a bureaucracy that uh, you really have to work around it, because New York City has 8 million people, but they have close to, probably close to half a million people working for them in various capacities, from garbage to everything else, to policemen. At that time, they had 25,000 policemen. I think they're about 100,000 now. And the, even the massive number of people that work for New York City is just massive. And people don't realize how big it is and how packed it is. I mean, traffic jams is what you get every day in New York City. So, But those, are, those I'm just recounting some of the interesting experiences I had. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've never said anything about this to you or, or even any of my children. I just, one thing about this podcast has gotten me to relive things that I did over time and I can say I can proud to say I, I'm telling it like it is and I don't feel ashamed of anything I did but listen your brain is young it's, it's, it's mobile it's, it's fluid it's got new memories and I'm proud of you dad I, I just I see you learning even more about yourself every day as you grow younger that's good you, you, you always had a good line of BS. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, uh, it's uh, going back to some of the things that we were talking about. Those are those those are the can days. Can you start from the beginning with the domes? I do have a question. Sure. At what age did you first get interested in a dome house? Well, the key, interesting thing is I, I have a buddy of mine in one of my excursions who is a, a landscape architect student at NC State. And I was at, I was at uh, Carolina, and I was in city planning school. And we both worked in the same department because there was a job that they gave to one or two students to work for the city of Raleigh because the, the guy who was in charge of that was a graduate of the city planning de- department. So I went over early and got a job as the the summer guy for that, and I worked next to a guy that was, was a landscape architect at NC State, and his best friend was a was a rich dome guy from from Oregon, whose parents apparently got had gotten killed at some point. So he was a very rich guy, and he had started building domes for Buckman's filling concept dome. And I always wanted one, so I went to a couple of things with him and saw how to do it and stuff like that. And I was always into it, but it was always so much money to get one. And the first domes that we built were in, in North Carolina, were actually right outside of Chapel Hill. Right along as you go toward uh, Burlington on Highway 54. So he was, uh, we went there, saw those things, and I wanted it, and I always wanted one. And I got very much into it, but I never had enough money to build one and even those in those days you're not talking about now we're talking about not a whole lot of money but still there was more than I really could afford I could afford a house at that time because you have to remember for, for houses even now you just pay put a down payment down and you're in the house versus if you build a dome you got to pay for the whole thing up front same thing with our yurts you had to, we had to pay for the whole yurt up front you know 
the yurt was the big yurt was thirty thousand dollars. You had to pay for that up up front. So we didn't we had money we had good jobs but we didn't have enough money to do anything but have a house. Me and your mother. So we uh but basically that's that's how I got into it. It was really kind of kind of a at that time I did I, even though I was a city planning graduate, I'd never heard of a landscape architect. And that actually was in, 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 in NC State. It wasn't in Carolina. The, the city planning department was in Carolina. And for those those people out there that they may sound like the same University of North Carolina and NC State University, but they're part of the same university system. But they're completely different institutions. They do different things, and the ethos of both places are completely different. They compete athletically in all kinds of ways, and they're, they're among the, the big rivalries there are. One's in Chapel Hill, the other's in Raleigh. And Raleigh's about 30 miles away from Chapel Hill. And there was a road that was took forever to get on, go between the two places, and a couple of governors lost Orange County when they ran, so therefore they never would improve the road. We had to have a governor that actually was voted in by the people in Orange County to get the road fixed, and that took 30 years. And that's, that, that was before I-40, which is a big, big, big highway now. That was before it was built. There's a highway you had to go. It's a highway called 54. You, it's North Carolina 54. It took forever to go to 30 miles between the two cities. So th- this is given history, but for folks who are around the world who, who, who don't really know it, but the Research Triangle is one of the hot spots of new inventions in the country. IBM has just expanded there with a couple billion dollar plant to come to coming in. And it's the research part of hub basically in Mecca for the whole country that's coming in and this the two research universities, Chapel Hill and uh, NC State. And of course Duke University is part of that too. Are located right there in what's called the Research Triangle. And I probably have told the people in Germany more than they want to know. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, listen, we're coming to the, uh, the last five minutes of the show, Dad. And, uh, we talked a great deal today about you dancing in the street. Uh, if you were to tell a young person now, you would give a young person some advice on life. What would you tell them? Whatever you're doing now, don't don't be ashamed of it. Just do the best. As my mother used to say, whatever you do at night will always come out in the light. So don't do anything that your mother would be afraid of or ashamed of, number one. Number two, remember, you're going to be telling your children whatever you're doing 30 years from now. So don't be doing doing anything that, that you'd be ashamed to talk to them about. And I'm not ashamed to talk about anything I ever did. I'll say to everybody out there, be safe, be good. Uh, please come to the, the Arvik Convention in, in uh, November in Raleigh. And adios, muchachos. Bye. Bye. Love you, man.